0: Thy word is a lamp unto my feet, and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, let's have a few moments of silent prayer to make sure we're in fellowship and ready to study the word, and then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, again, we express our gratitude that we can be here together this evening to fellowship around the study of your word because we know that your word is alive and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the, to the dividing asunder the soul and the spirit and discerning and separating the joints and the marrow, discerning the thoughts and intents of the heart. Father, we're thankful that as we study your word, it is your word used by God, the Holy Spirit, that opens up and enlightens our thinking to uh truth, and that we can understand creation as you have created it, and that as a result of our understanding of your word, we can uh, focus on serving you and focus on being a witness, testimony for your grace and for your truth. We pray that as we study your word this evening, that we would be challenged by what we learn, and we pray this in Christ's name, amen. We're in Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter twelve, and it's been a couple of weeks since we were uh, we were here uh, last week. I gave you a report on the uh, trip I made to Washington D.C. and the uh, Capitol, the spiritual heritage tour of the Capitol. And so this week we're back in Hebrews, focusing on just this one verse. Going back over it again, uh, Hebrews twelve fourteen. Pursue peace with all people and holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. I want to go back and take some time on that first mandate to pursue peace with all people. Now this fits within an overall structure of the, of the book that we've seen that we come to the last section in Hebrews, beginning in Hebrews 11.1 1, and extending down to the end of the book in 11.25. It started off with a a period of instruction focusing on these great uh, uh, examples of perseverance in belief in chapter 11. That's actually the focal point there is their perseverance in belief in the promise of God. And then there it's followed by uh, a challenge in twelve one through 29, and uh, which includes a warning starting in verse uh, verse twenty five so we're in this practical challenge dealing with the focus on Christ, focus on his uh, endurance in the midst of testing that despite how uh, <clears throat> how much opposition, how much resentment, how much hostility he faced uh, in the condemnation to go to the cross, that nevertheless he ran his race. With endurance, And based on that example, we are uh, enjoined in verse 1 to let us run with endurance the race set before us. And so starting in verse 2, we see that Christ sets the example of endurance in the race. The race is characterized by uh, the need to be disciplined, uh, using the whole imagery of discipline, not just in the sense of chastisement, but also becoming uh, disciplined, stripping off uh, the things in our life that distract us from our primary objective and goal in terms of spiritual growth and spiritual maturity, and so that we can be trained and become a mature and effective uh, believer. Starting in verse 12, there's a challenge to, especially to the original readers, because they have grown weary they they want to give up, they have faced opposition, they faced resentment, they have faced hostility uh, from uh, unbelievers, and so it is uh, it, they are being challenged not to give up on Christianity, not to fade out and so the writer uses this metaphor of uh, strengthening the hands the the uh, drooping hands and the feeble knees using that same athletic metaphor going back to the race that even though you become weary and you just don't feel like you can continue and you just want to drop out that you need to be uh have be, be strengthened so that you can go forward now when i did this the last time i got confused with a couple of different verbs so i just want to straighten this out so you can get it right in your notes and this uh in verse 12 We have an aorist active imperative of onortho, which has as its root ortho meaning to straighten things out. It's a a good, uh, too bad Bruce isn't here tonight, it's a good dental term, same word we get, orthodontist, to straighten out your teeth. So you're to uh, strengthen or straighten up the hands, and it has the idea of restoring straightness or erectness to something, rebuilding it, something of that nature, regaining the strength that was once there. And then in verse uh, 13, we have a the the root form or the root noun actually is used here, uh, make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be dislocated, but rather be healed, and that uses the uh, noun orthos in conjunction with the verb poyeo to uh, <clears throat> make or make straight uh, paths, to straighten something something out. So that is your primary uh, introductory command here is to strengthen, straighten out uh, the hands and the knees, and then to go forward in the straight paths, the paths related to truth. And following those those straight paths. Now, in order to do that, it involves personal relationships. They're under opposition whenever you're involved in a cir- circumstance in your uh, in your Christian life where you are uh, that's the issue, and you are being um, perhaps ridiculed or persecuted for whatever reason related to your christianity that's the primary application here but it's also related to other areas in life there are a lot of ways in which we as individuals get involved in personal conflicts with other people and sometimes with other believers and this is some of the hardest things to have to deal with especially if it is if it involves close family members but it can involve anything from close family members to co-workers to um neighbors to any sort of situation where you are involved. It can be someone in a business deal that uh, uh, perhaps you have been uh, cheated or defrauded. And so whenever things of that nature occur, whenever we think that we have been uh, mistreated or we can't get things done the way we think they should and somebody is preventing it, then that always is an opportunity for a tremendous conflict to occur. And so we have to understand within the context of scripture that the believer is to pursue peace, and this is a word that is always used in the context in opposition to conflict. Now sometimes it's used in contrast to an external conflict uh, there are uh, It's used that way a lot in the Old Testament in terms of physical conflict and peace versus war or peace among people who are uh, in opposition to one another, are antagonistic to one another, fighting against one another. In the New Testament, the word is very rarely used in that kind of a context. Usually it's used in contrast to conflict in the soul, a person who is worried, a person who is uh, always uh, characterized by anxiety or fear. Uh, that person is to have peace, which indicates a, a lack of soul conflict a lack of anxiety or worry or fear but in this context in hebrews 12 14 it's not talking about inner peace it's talking about uh, having relationships that are characterized by peace and tranquility rather than hostility antagonism and conflict and so believers are uh, mandated to Pursue peace with all people. Now, the initial command in terms of strengthening the hands and the uh, feeble knees was an aorist imperative, and last time I pointed out that that emphasizes a priority. Many times I find the style in in, uh, writers in Greek where they'll give a primary command uh, in terms of an aorist tense, and it's followed up with, with present imperatives which emphasize ongoing action. So here we have the present imperative ongoing action that we are to always pursue peace with all people. And the idea of pursuit here, uh, dioko is the verb, and it indicates moving rapidly or moving decisively towards an objective. We are to pursue this objective. We are to strive for this objective. This is not really an option in the believer's life. Now, the word people, as I pointed out last time, isn't in the original. What you have is just the phrase Pursue peace with all. And you have the same phrase in uh, uh, 1 Thessalonians 5.15, See that no one repays another with evil for evil. That's, again, the same kind of context. Instead of uh, being motivated by revenge, uh motivated by the desire to make things right to get get justice uh which is a self-serving motivation don't repay evil for evil but always seek same verb that we have in Hebrews 12:14 seek a- after that which is good for one another and for all people and so there with the contrast one another refers to other christians and for all would re- would broaden the uh the object to Uh, beyond the body of Christ, beyond other Christians. So we're to pursue peace with all people and uh, also pursuing holiness, that is sanctification, without which no one will see the Lord. Now, I dealt mostly last time with that second phrase, which relates to uh, spiritual maturity and rewards, which I'll come back to as we get into the next couple of verses. But here I just want to come back and focus again on the main idea of pursuing peace with all people. This is part of spiritual growth. The word hagiasmas for holiness uh, relates to holiness, consecration, or sanctification. And here it's not talking about uh, phase one sanctification or becoming a believer or a Christian, which occurs... Uh, With everybody, the instant you trust Christ as Savior, you are identified with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. That's referred to as the baptism uh, by the Holy Spirit. And at that instant, you become positionally set apart to God or positionally sanctified. And that position, our position in Christ, can never be lost. However, in a practical sense, in terms of our everyday experience, We often uh, sin. We often live no differently than uh, unbelievers do. We're characterized by many of the same traits because we continue to possess a a sin nature. And so we need to define uh, the the meaning of sanctification there. So we went through this chart, which is one familiar to most of you. That uh, we have three stages of salvation or three stages of sanctification. Justification occurs at a moment in time when we trust Christ as Savior. Phase two is the ongoing experiential growth of the believer, known called uh, experiential sanctification or spiritual growth or the spiritual life. and then phase three has to do with our glorification when we are absent from the body and face to face with the Lord. Now, so we have these three terms used, positional sanctification for phase one, progressive sanctification for phase two, and then ultimate sanctification for phase three. Uh, the focus is on, now I have to rebuild that whole slide. Let me see how fast I can do that. That's what I get for getting too quick with my fingers. Okay, we're freed from the penalty of sin at the point of faith in Christ. We're freed from the power of sin in spiritual growth. We learn to trust in the Scriptures, apply the Scriptures, rather than respond on the basis of our sin nature. But we still have that problem, and it's not until we're absent from the body that we're freed from the presence, uh, the total presence of sin. Now, when we look at this verse, that we are to pursue peace... With all people, we have to understand this in a broader context. And this is hard for a lot of people because this fits within the broader doctrine of what it means to have uh, unconditional love for one another. And it brings in the whole uh, doctrine on forgiving one another as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven us. The only way we can pursue peace with some people who have been the source of conflict, the cause of conflict is in terms of understanding how to apply principles related to forgiveness. And this is never easy. Uh, and in some cases, it's, it's uh, extremely difficult. And so I want to spend a little time, a little more time, breaking this down uh, so that we can understand the emphasis of the Scripture on the importance of peace. This is not something that is a, a secondary doctrine. But in order to understand what the scriptures teach about this, we have to set it within a, uh, a a context of the scriptures. And so we always, as I point out many, many times, where do we get our pattern for anything in life? We get it from going to the scriptures and we get it from looking first at God and seeing how he sets the pattern and the example for us. And that then lays the groundwork for how we then are to apply this particular doctrine in our own lives, which just usually makes it a lot more uh, difficult for us to, to, uh, to do. So I want to start with peace in relationship to God. Why is this so important? And the first point is that God is identified as the God of peace numerous times in the scripture. This is one of the titles that we find in the Bible for God. He is the God of peace. In the Old Testament, in Judges 6.24, when Gideon had destroyed the altar to Baal and when uh, God had appeared to him to commission him to d- uh, deliver the Israelites from from the Midianites. He built an altar to the Lord and called it The Lord is Peace, Yahweh Shalom. The Lord is Peace. And to this day, uh, the writer says it's still an Ophrah of the Abizrites. So this is a title for God. He is the God of Peace. In several of Paul's epistles he concludes with a benediction and utilizing the title the God of peace for example in uh, Romans 15:33 now the God of peace be with you all then we have 2 Corinthians 13:11 Paul concludes the letter finally brethren farewell become complete be of good comfort be of one mind live in peace See there's that command again to live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you, so again, we see the uh, God is the God of peace, and this is connected to his love, so to have peace with all men is going to bring into focus the whole doctrine related to unconditional love and what that means and and of course, what lies behind it is grace. Uh, orientation, understanding, grace. Philippians four nine, Paul says, "The things which you have learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do, and the God of peace will be with you." Hebrews thirteen twenty, as uh, <coughs> the writer of Hebrews closes out this epistle, he says, "Now may the God of peace, who brought up our Lord Jesus from the dead, that great Shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting." covenant. First Thessalonians five twenty three. now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. So God is identified as a God of peace. In scripture, we learn that God is a holy God, God is love, and God is the God of peace. This indicates that he is the source of peace and that peace can only come in right relationship to him. Now, when we look at This whole concept of peace in relationship to God, we realize that the scriptures attribute to God uh, the uh, the peace and that he is the only one who blesses us with real peace. It can't come from uh, any other source. We don't get it from the details of life. We don't get it from our circumstances. We don't get it from the people around us. We get it only because we are in right relationship to God. And so a number of passages in Scripture also emphasize that he is the source of uh, peace in our lives. He's the one who blesses us uh, with peace. Psalm 29.11, the Lord will give strength to his people. The Lord will bless his people with peace. He is the source of peace. In Levit- Leviticus twenty-six, six, which is... Uh, the passage focusing on the blessing that God would give to uh, Israel in the land if they were obedient. He says, I will give peace in the land. Now, that's defined in context in relation to the absence of warfare, the absence of conflict. I will give peace in the land. You shall lie down. None will make you afraid. Uh, so it's also in context of the soul. There's peace in the land, and there's no source of fear. I will rid the land of evil beasts and the sword will not go through your land. Uh, Another couple of verses in the Psalms, Psalm 119, 165. Great peace have those who love your law. Because there are those who love the law of the Lord, which is the Word of God, the Torah. Uh, There are numerous uh, different phrases used in Psalm 119 as synonyms for the Word of God. Commandments, the testimony of the law, uh, uh, of the word, the testimony of God, the law, a number of other uh, synonyms. Great peace have those who love your law. And the word for law there is is Torah. And Torah doesn't always mean, translate directly as the law of Moses. The word Torah has as its root meaning instruction. And so what the, what, what's probably a better way of understanding this is great peace have those who love the instruction of God. That's why the Torah is given, the law of God is given to instruct people on how to live in a way that honors and glorifies God so that they will have His blessing in their lives. So great peace have those who love your instruction. We could paraphrase it that way. And nothing causes them to stumble because they have made the word the fortification of their soul. Proverbs 16:7. When a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies, that is God makes even his enemies, to be at peace with him. And so this, again, is an absence of conflict. It's not necessarily military conflict. It can have uh, conflict in any other form. It could be family conflict, conflict with competitors, conflict with uh, uh, others uh, in the family, those who are jealous, those who are trying to take advantage of us. So God will make even his enemies to be at peace with him. And then in the New Testament, Galatians 6.16 states, And as many as walk according to this rule, that is what's just been explained in the previous chapter, walking according to the Holy Spirit, peace and mercy be upon them. So God is the one who bestows peace, and it is the result of a believer who is walking in obedience to God. So the first principle that we looked at is that God is identified as the God of peace numerous times in the Scripture. And then the second point, that the God of peace is the one who blesses those who follow him with peace. He is the source of peace. Not only is he the source of peace, but the third point is that God commands his people to seek and pursue peace with all. So this is a mandate a priority for the believer in his life this is both found in both the old testament as well as the new testament in the old testament we have psalm 34:14 depart from evil and do good seek peace and pursue it so that second uh strophe there emphasizes the idea of seeking peace that we find in our passage in hebrews hebrews 12:14 as well as in um, as well as in 1st Thessalonians 5 but it also emphasizes that um it also emphasizes that that we are to pursue it it's to, we're to seek it and we are to pursue it which indicates making it a priority third uh Another scripture for God commanding his people to seek and pursue peace with all romans fourteen nineteen. therefore, let us pursue the things which make for peace, and the things which uh, which one may edify with by which one may edify another. We are to make this a priority. first uh, Corinthians seven fifteen, but God has called us to peace. Then we have second corinthians thirteen eleven. Uh, Be of good comfort, be of one mind, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. So, again, we're commanded to live in peace. Colossians 3.15, And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which also you are called into one body, and be thankful. So, peace begins in the soul, peace begins as a mental attitude, and then it will work itself out in terms of, dealing with uh, conflicts and relationships. 1 Thessalonians 5.13, be at peace among yourselves. So the third point is that this is not an option. God commands his people to seek and to pursue peace with all. Now we come to the fourth point. Fourth point is that God describes his new covenant, that is, the new covenant that he promised with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, which comes into effect at the beginning of the Messianic kingdom, that new covenant is identified as a covenant of peace. Isaiah 54.10 says, For the mountains shall depart and the hills be removed, but my kindness shall not depart from you, nor shall my covenant of peace be removed. Now, this has its foundation, as we'll see, at the cross where man is reconciled to God. That takes place at the cross when Christ paid the penalty for sins, and that laid the foundation for the new covenant. That was the sacrifice. When Jesus observed the Lord's table, which we uh, observe once a month, he took the cup and he said, this is the new covenant of my blood, which is given uh, as a sacrifice for you. So the that represents this new covenant as a covenant of peace, and that's going as we'll see, that's peace between God and man. Uh, Ezekiel thirty four twenty-five also uh relates to the new covenant. I will make a covenant of peace with them and cause wild beasts to cease from the land, and they will dwell safely in the wilderness and sleep in the woods. Then we have also Ezekiel uh, thirty seven twenty six. Moreover, I will make a covenant of peace with them, and it shall be an everlasting covenant with them. I will establish them and multiply them, and I will set my sanctuary in their midst forever. So that, as we've seen in our study of Revelation on on Tuesday night, that sets the framework for the new Jerusalem, which is where God will establish his presence when he comes to dwell on the earth forever. So the New Covenant is defined as a covenant of peace, and that's because of the foundation at the cross. All right, the fifth thing we need to note by way of introduction to dealing with the importance of this doctrine is that in in the Old Testament, as well as in the New, peace is a form of greeting, and a form of greeting that God uses. We have the fray uh, the the word shalom in the hebrew and arene in the greek and most of the letters that paul writes he begins grace and peace to you in the old testament we also have other passages that emphasize uh the word uh, shalom uh, as a as a greeting in judges 6:23 we have the lord uh, speaking to gideon peace be with you do not fear you shall not die, so here peace is contrasted with fear as a as a mental attitude, but it is a greeting first samuel sixteen five he said peaceably, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord, sanctify yourselves, and come with me to the sacrifice. And this is speaking of Samuel when he came to consecrate Jesse and his sons. So peace relates to a form of a greeting uh, jesus in luke twenty four thirty six uh, when Jesus appeared to the disciples after the resurrection, says, peace to you. So we have this as a greeting form. All of what I'm saying here is to emphasize that living with one another in peace is not an option. This is a mandate uh, from Scripture. That doesn't mean it's easy, and, and we'll have to discuss the whole issue of what do you do when somebody doesn't want to live in peace with you. Well, you do what you can do and the decisions they make, well that's, that's, that's their problem. But we need to make sure we are doing and living the way we should be, we should be living. Now the next point is where we start seeing the significance of peace in terms of God's peace, in terms of how it is foundational, uh, in terms of what we are to do. And the starting point of course is going to be the gospel. Peace with God is the foundational message of the gospel. It's related to, of course, justification, related to regeneration, but it is a foundational concept in the gospel. Now, Luke 2.14 is one of those verses that has been at the focal point of some uh, translation controversy. So just uh, I'm going to deal with that a little bit here, uh, but not go into an in excessive detail. This is when the angels appear to the shepherds in the fields outside of uh, outside of Bethlehem, and when the when the angel choir uh, begins to sing, the what they sing is "Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men." Now, if you look in your New American Standard or New International Version or some other translations. You will see that it is uh, sometimes translated, and on earth, uh, peace to men of goodwill. And in that translation, the of goodwill uh, characterizes or limits the men to whom peace applies. It, it applies to those who are men of goodwill, and that is taken to mean those who have, there's peace to those who have um, who are right with God, but not for others. The difference has to do with the text of, of, the, of the Greek text. In the oldest manuscripts, three or four of the oldest manuscripts, what you have is a, an accusative form of the, uh, of the Greek uh, noun uh, eudokia. That's spelled E-U-D-O. Kia Eudokia, and in the genitive singular, then that is translated. Genitive is a possessive case, so Eudokias uh, would indicate of goodwill. And so, some of these older manuscripts indicate uh, that it's a genitive. They've added adds the s, now, but the majority of manuscripts, the majority of manuscripts, do not have that s on the end. They just have Eudokia and if it doesn't have the s on the end then it's in the nominative case in which case it would mean goodwill toward men so goodwill uh is placed in the as the subject in the in the in the um, in the phrase as opposed to uh, a genitive uh descriptor of the kind of men that receive peace so that's that's the distinction now it always sounds nice and simple to say, well, the oldest, the oldest manuscripts must be correct. And, but it's, that's, that's simplistic and it's not necessarily true because you could have a, a, you can have a copy that, that we have that, let's say you have a seventh or eighth century manuscript that is a faithful copy of an older manuscript that's dated like, let's say 150 uh, or so AD. And the, do, the, the 150 A.D. document is correct. So that would mean that your 7th century or 8th century document would also be correct. It faithfully copied the 2nd century document. But your 3rd century document may be corrupted in some ways, may not reflect a good good background. So if you lose your 2nd century document and all you have is a faithful copy from the 7th century, that 7th century document is going to be better and more faithful than your 3rd century document. Now let me give you an example of that from the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, uh, one of the ways in which the uh, the Old Testament documents can be dated is by looking at the vowel points. When Hebrew was originally written... Uh, there were no vowel points. When the Old Testament was written, you just wrote consonants. And people learned how to read that, and it's pretty simple to do. If I were to take something like the Constitution or the Declaration of Independence and just write out all the consonants, you'd be surprised at how easily you could read that document because you're familiar with English, and you've been reading English for a number of years, and you can pick it out without any problem. There may be a couple of places where you stumble a little, but mostly you you can read it. And, um, but over the years, in order to preserve the correct pronunciation of words, some of the Hebrew scribes began to develop ways to indicate the vowels in some words. What they did initially was they took some consonants, the the U, and which U and W kind of are the same letter, and also, uh, the Y, uh, could stand for an I. And so they took a couple of consonants like that and they, made them do double duty and to stand as, as, as vowels. Then later on, some two or 300 years later, they got the idea of using different uh, points and different marks that they would place under the consonants to indicate the vowels. So as time goes on, the more and more recent you get, the more and more current you get going down the timeline, the more vowels you find in a Hebrew document. Well the the vowels in the pentateuch that that is the books of Moses the torah genesis to deuteronomy the books in the pentateuch contain that we have in the masoretic text contain fewer vowels than the vowels of the pentateuch in the dead sea scrolls and what that tells us is that the the manuscript tradition that lies behind the the Masoretic text, which is dated ninth century A.D., actually goes back to a much older original than the Dead Sea Scrolls, which are a thousand years older than the Masoretic text. So just because something is older doesn't mean it's necessarily better. But that was the idea that came out of um, that came out of uh, British scholars and their views of textual criticism, most commonly known as the Westcott-Hort theory, uh, back in the late 19th century. Since then, especially in the middle part of the the 20th century, there have been a number of uh, scholars who have come up with problems with that view. And there are those who, in contrast to the Westcott-Hort view, hold to a view called the majority text. And the majority text view basically says if it's in the majority of documents, then that's more than likely the correct reading. In the Westcott Hort view, they rely very heavily on four documents dated in the third and fourth century. And if you have any reading, basically, to make it simple, if they, if you have a reading that's attested by three of those four, then that's it for them. You know, that's, that's the reading you go with. And that is the view that underlies the new American standard, the um, new international version, English standard version, a bunch of the modern translations, whereas uh, the majority text view it really reflects what they call a Byzantine text form because it's found primarily and mostly in the area of uh, of turkey and uh, and and Greece, and so that is reflected mostly in the Documents that underlie the King James and New King James, but not precisely that, docu- that Greek text that underlies the uh, <clears throat> underlies the Greek. I mean, underlies the uh, 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 King James was what was called the Textus Receptus, which was based on just nine or ten Greek texts that were available in the early 1500s, but none of them were any older than the ninth century and the textus receptus isn't identical to the majority text view there's at least 1800 differences between those two uh those two approaches and so the majority text view i think is has more behind it uh and is uh weightier than the um the the, the of course textus receptus has problems but um, the majority text view i think is much closer than the critical text so that would mean that this is saying goodwill toward men, and I think that fits because what God is sending in the in, in the Messiah in Jesus is that He is going to be the source of peace and reconciling God man to God, and so He is sending peace, the gift of the Messiah, and peace, and it is God's expression of goodwill to change that. Uh, relationship between God and man, which occurred at the cross. And we'll see how that works itself out uh, in a couple of passages we look at as we develop this. So peace with God is the foundational message of the gospel, and reconciliation is what occurs at at the cross. We'll see that when we get into Colossians uh, chapter, chapter 1 and Colossians chapter 2. So the seventh point is, that the only basis for understanding how to achieve this, that is how to have peace with people who are uh, are in conflict with us, is to uh, examine the most extreme conflict in history. Whatever conflicts we have in our own lives, whatever conflicts you have with your uh, friends or with your siblings or with your coworkers or with your neighbor or with someone in your family is nothing compared to the conflict that erupted when Adam sinned against God. When Adam sinned against God, we have the beginning of the uh, greatest uh, conflict in terms of human history that ever occurred. At that instant, you have all the elements that make up any good novel or any good soap opera, any good story, and we have the introduction of all of those great themes that drive every story themes of betrayal and rejection and loss, hostility toward God down through the ages. All of that comes out of adam 's sin in Genesis chapter three, and yet it is God who is the one who is rejected, God who is the one who's betrayed, God is the one who has been um, uh, has been disrespected, God is the one who has been uh, completely uh, vilified and cursed by man, Nevertheless, it is God who takes the initiative to solve the problem in the conflict, and he does everything necessary to bring resolution uh, to that conflict. And the two basic and key passages in Scripture for understanding this are in Romans chapter 5 and Colossians uh, chapter 1 as well as Colossians chapter 2. So we, we won't get much beyond just orienting to this point uh, tonight because of the significance of these two passages. So the first passage is Romans chapter five, verses one and two. So, uh, let's turn in our Bibles to Romans, uh, Romans five. I just have the first two verses up on the slide, but, uh, I want to refer to some other verses, uh, within the, within the immediate context. If we look at the at Romans chapter 4, just right before the discussion of reconciliation, we have Paul's tremendous discussion on the whole doctrine of justification by faith, and he grounds that justification by faith in the Old Testament. How does a man have a right relationship with God? If man is... A sinner, if man does not have the same righteousness as God, if man is corrupt, how can that individual be made right with God so that that individual is just? Can he do something to overcome the deficits in his behavior and in his character? Can he do anything to overcome the deficits of being a descendant of Adam and having a sin nature? And the answer that the Scripture gives is that, no, there is nothing that man can do to overcome those those deficits. That's what Isaiah is talking about in Isaiah 64, 6, that all our works of righteousness are as filthy rags. The best that we can do, ritual observance, whether uh, it's it's Jewish ritual observance in the Old Testament or whether it is any form of ritual observance in various uh, religions today, ritual observance doesn't do enough. Nothing does enough. Good works, uh, doing all the good deeds that you can do, doesn't do enough to overcome the deficit uh, of sin. So the only thing that, that can overcome that deficit is if God credits something to us, to our account, that is greater than the deficit of sin. And so he Paul uses for his example Abraham from the Old Testament. Starting in uh, Romans 4, 1, uh, Paul says, What then shall we say about Abraham that Abraham our father has found according to the flesh? That is in his humanity. Verse 2, for if Abraham was justified by works. That is, if Abraham becomes just before God on the basis of his own behavior, on the basis of his own obedience to God, on the basis of his sacrifices to God, on the basis of uh, any form of ritual observance, well, Paul says, if Abraham was justified by works, then he would have something to boast about, but not before God. He would have something to boast about because it is. there's nothing wrong with doing good works. There's nothing wrong with being involved in the, in the community. There's nothing invo- wrong with being involved in certain um, ways of uh, working within society to improve things. But that isn't going to uh, cut any ice with God. That's not going to overcome the deficit of sin. Uh, it may give you something to be proud of, something to boast about, but it doesn't give us any credit before God. And then in verse 3, Paul says, For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. And this is a quote from Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, that it was Abraham's faith or trust in God, in the promise of God, that was accounted or imputed to him as righteousness. It's not works, it's faith, it's trust in God, and then God, because of that faith, imputes or credits to our account the righteousness that overcomes the deficit. That righteousness comes from him. He imputes to us his perfect righteousness or the righteousness of Christ. Now, verse 4 says, Now, to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, the works as opposed to grace, but as a debt. But to him who does not work but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. So this is the doctrine of justification. We are justified by faith. Now turn to Romans five one. Having gone through this extended discussion. In uh, Romans 4, Paul is saying that we're justified by faith. Having been justified by faith, we have as a real experiential possession, peace with God. Now, as I pointed out sometime back when we studied uh, the whole doctrine of, of forgiveness, which is related to this, we saw that there are four different kinds of forgiveness. The first kind of forgiveness is a forgiveness that relates to the uh, objective wiping out or canceling of the debt of sin. It doesn't affect us personally. It has to do with the transaction that occurred on the cross. So the transaction that occurs on the cross has to do with that initial act of reconciliation. Now, the second kind of forgiveness I pointed out was a positional. Forgiveness That we have when we trust Christ as a Savior, then that forgiveness that occurred, the wiping out of the debt and the cross, is applied to us positionally in terms of our position in Christ. That is uh, comparable to what happens when we trust Christ. At that point, we have peace. That is that peace that comes positionally uh, by, mean, uh, by virtue of our relationship with Christ. Therefore... Uh, having been justified with faith, because of the uh, participle there, that should be understood as a causal participle, and and translated, because we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand, present tense, and rejoice, In the hope of the glory of God. So we have peace because we've been justified. There's a logical relationship there. It's not a chronological relationship, but a logical one. That justification uh, means that we have peace with God and then we're standing in his grace And that leads to joy in the hope of the Lord. Then it goes on to the next few verses in terms of application, in terms of our spiritual growth. But the foundation is in terms of the doctrine of uh, peace with God or reconciliation. Now, let's turn over to Colossians chapter 1. I think we'll just have enough time to tie these things together tonight. Colossians chapter 1. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Now we'll be entering into a study of Colossians in a few weeks as we wrap up uh, some of the current studies. This will sort of give you a preview of coming attractions. In Colossians 1.19 we read, For it pleased the Father that in him, that is in Christ, all the fullness should dwell, and by him, that is by Christ, to reconcile all things to himself by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Okay, now when, did, when, did that, when was that peace transaction accomplished? It's accomplished at the cross. Not when you believe, but it was accomplished by what Jesus Christ did on the cross. There is a reconciliation that occurs at the cross when all things are reconciled to God. Does that mean everything's just great hunky-dory and there's no more sin? No. But it, it relates to the fact that the sin problem is dealt with finally and completely at the cross, as we'll see when we get into the verse, verses in chapter 2. But that doesn't change the experiential reality of sin in the universe. But it solves the justice problem with God so that it solves the, 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 that which, which forms the barrier between uh, God and man. So he reconciles all things to himself with that, that barrier that's between God and his creation because the creation has been tainted by sin is removed by the work of Christ on the cross. So he reconciles at the cross all things, uh, whether on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. And then in the next two verses... This is applied specifically to the Colossian believers. And you who once were alienated and enemies in your mind. See, that's what happens in a conflict. You get, you become alienated from someone else. They become an enemy. They're hostile to us. There is anger, resentment, bitterness. All of these things begin to boil up. And so we have the same des- kinds of descriptions here. ...for the relationship between fallen humanity and God. We are alienated and enemies of God. A state of hostility occurs, and the the, there is a maximum conflict now between uh, man and God. So Paul says, "...you who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death..." to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. So the act of reconciliation has to do with blotting out the certificate of debt, as we'll see um, in just a minute. Now, just prior to this discussion in Colossians 1, back in verse 14, Paul said that it was in whom, that is in Christ, we have redemption through his blood. That's the... Uh, the blood of Christ, that means the death of Christ, refers to his uh, death on the cross, his spiritual death, that paid for sins, which results in the forgiveness of sins. Now, the word that is used for forgiveness of sin here is the word "aphiemi." Now, there's two different words that are used for, for sin here. And this is really important. I didn't put it up on the in the Greek up on the board, but it's still important. Um, The forgiveness of sin here is afiemi, and afiemi means to completely release something. That's what happens in conflict resolution, is whatever causes the conflict has to be let go. It has to be released. You have to get past it. And I'm not saying it's easy. I'm just saying that's that's the end result. There is the forgiveness, the letting go of sin. It's not a problem anymore. Now you say, how did that happen? And that is then developed... When we get into the second chapter, we've gone through this some before, and what I have up here is a little bit of a, a clarified or uh, expanded translation to understand what, what uh, the writer is getting at here in Colossians 2:13 and 14. What you see at the end of verse 13 is the phrase, Forgave you all trespasses. That's a focal point here. But the word for forgiveness here isn't afiemi, which is what we had in uh, 114. The word here is karizomai, And karizomai has as its root meaning grace. So the key to understanding forgiveness is that it is an undeserved action. It is gracious. It, it's not because the person's done something to deserve it. It is an undeserved action And what we'll see, just to give you a preview of coming attractions, when we read in Hebrews 12, uh, we read, Pursue peace with all people. Look, and then verse 15 will say, Looking carefully, that is, examining yourself, lest anyone should fall short of the grace of God. Now, some people have taken that to mean losing salvation, but what it means is, that we are to pursue peace with everyone but be careful that you don't forget that you're supposed to deal with them in grace. Don't come short of the grace principle in how you're dealing with the others in a in conflict resolution. Grace is the dominant principle. So that's emphasized here by the word for, that, uh, by the Greek word charizmi, which in many cases is a synonym to aphiemi. It's also used in some passages as aphiemi is for the forgiveness of a debt, which means the complete cancellation and obliteration of the debt. So in Colossians 2, 13 and 14, what we read is, and you being dead in your trespasses and sins, that's a participle that indicates Previous action, you when you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your faith, in other words, when you were a rebel against God, when you were spiritually dead, when you were hostile to him, when you didn 't care about god, you didn 't care about the truth, you just wanted to live your life uh, the way you wanted to live it, when you were being dead, when you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made you alive together with him see. When you were dead, he made us alive together uh, with him. That's focusing on the point of salvation. That's when we are regenerated, when we trust in Christ as Savior. Because, how could he regenerate you? Because he forgave you past tense. The forgiveness of all trespasses occurred before the regeneration. Well, when did he forgive you of all your trespasses? He did it. And then you have an instrumental participle at the beginning of the next verse by wiping out or eradicating the handwriting of requirements or the certificate of debt that was against us. Well, when did he wipe the slate clean? When did he wipe out all these charges against us? When we trusted Christ? No, that's not what it says. It says he did this, he wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. So the the list of deficits that we had are nailed to the cross historically. That was 2,000 years ago. That's when the sins were dealt with objectively in a legal manner at the cross so that sin isn't the issue anymore. It's not the issue for anybody. That's why you don't start off talking to somebody about why they need to quit doing this and quit doing that and clean up their life and everything else because sin's not the issue. They need to understand they're a sinner under a death penalty, but they don't. That you don't belabor the point by making them uh, sweat because they've committed sins. They're still going to commit sins after they're saved. That's not the issue. The issue is Christ. Their sins were wiped out at the cross so that... The sin isn't the issue. Now, because the sin was dealt with objectively at the cross, then God in turn can, on the basis of that, forgive or wipe out uh, the, the, the trespasses, can wipe out the acts against him, the acts of hostility. So there has to be a legal basis before forgiveness takes place. And I think that's important to to keep in mind when we start talking about uh, conflict resolution. Now, we'll stop here, and I'll come back to this next time as we begin to develop uh, where we go uh, from this on the basis of understanding how God resolves the greatest conflict that's ever occurred in human history because it's that resolution that becomes the pattern for understanding how we are to resolve conflicts in our own lives. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study these things this evening. And though it's very difficult at times for us to be involved in uh, reconciliation with others, in dealing with conflicts, hostility, rejection, nevertheless, that is what we have been commanded to do. And that is to be a part of our makeup as believers fulfilling the commandments that we have uh, in the Scripture that we are to uh, love our neighbor as ourselves, Father, we pray that you would help us to understand how this goes into practice because it cannot be done apart from the ministry of God, the Holy Spirit, in our lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.